This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Polity Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Democracy at Work, Contract, Status, and Post-Industrial Justice by Ruth Dukes and Wolfgang Streak. According to scholars Ruth Dukes and Wolfgang Streak, the time is ripe to restate the principles of industrial democracy and citizenship for the post-industrial era. Considering developments within political economy, employment relations, and labor law since the post-war decades, they trace the rise of globalization, the dual emergence of a core and periphery of workers, and the increasing insulation of working relations from democratic governance. All told, these developments suggest an urgent need for political intervention to tame the new world of gig work, and the path forward will require far-reaching institution building that will fill legal concepts of employment with political substance. Democracy at Work by Ruth Dukes and Wolfgang Streak, available in January from Polity Press. Learn more and pre-order at www.politybooks.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Dig listeners know that the conventional myths of the revolutionary era— which portray the American War for Independence as this simplistic struggle against British oppression, obscure the founders' interest in accelerating and extending the dispossession of indigenous peoples' land by shaking off British curbs on westward expansion. And you know that the dominant conceptions of freedom were fundamentally premised on the enslavement of Africans. William Hoagland's book, Founding Finance, How Debt, Speculation, Foreclosures, Protests, and Crackdowns Made Us a Nation adds another important dimension to our understanding of this critical period. In this interview, conducted by our beloved guest host, Astra Taylor, Hoagland narrates the violent conflicts over economics, class, and finance that shaped the U.S. Constitution and shored up the power of the creditor class against the white masses. As the British settler colonial project in North America entered what would become a terminal crisis, there was not just the obvious conflict between white elites, aka the Founding Fathers, and the British Empire, but also a long-simmering internal conflict between those American elites and poor, class-conscious white American radicals. Hoagland recovers a fascinating crop of mostly forgotten rebels, the movements they led, and their radical demands that put the landlords and lenders of their day on edge. He also recounts the complex and sometimes deadly machinations that went into suppressing those rebellions in order to create a nation that was safe for the owning and investing classes. As Hoagland's account makes clear, financial clashes— Foreclosure crises, investment bubbles, mercenary bondholders, scarce cash, regressive taxation, and war profiteering all made the United States what it is today. Before we get started, if you spend a few hours, or maybe way more than a few hours, listening to The Dig every month, please support the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. 
We do get some money from advertisers, but not so much, because I don't advertise mattresses or website hosting companies. Most of the funding that keeps The Dig running comes from listeners like you. It's your donations that allow us to put out every episode without a paywall so that everyone can listen, regardless of your ability to pay. What's more, a contribution of any amount at all gets you our really excellent newsletter sent to you by email. It's really good. And contributions of $10 or more a month gets you a book or books, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. Please, don't tell yourself you'll do it later, because, let's face it, you will forget. Please contribute what you can right now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. The link is right there in the show notes. Please click it now. Okay, here's Astra Taylor interviewing William Hoagland. William Hoagland is the author of five books on the American founding period, including... Founding Finance, The Whiskey Rebellion, and Autumn of the Black Snake. His new book, The Hamilton Scheme, Alexander Hamilton and His Enemies and Allies in the Fight to Found an American Economy, is forthcoming from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Bill Hoagland, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. So listeners of The Dig will not be surprised by the idea that the Constitution of the United States is deeply steeped in class conflict. That's sort of a central premise of this entire podcast. And I'm thinking of other other episodes we've done that I want to recommend to, to listeners, past interviews about settlers and slave owners and founding dramas, a great one with constitutional scholar Aziz Rana, or one I did with the historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who is the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States. But what I find so useful about your, your book, Will, and your work broadly, because this book is you know part of a, a larger body of work, is that you had this really critical and I think under-discussed dimension to this period, and you bring to life really fascinating details and some unknown characters and conflicts, or maybe just unknown to me, while also shedding new light on some very famous characters, you know, the, the founding fathers. You know, I want to say as we kick off this interview that it's a bit of a different interview for me and that your book is a work of historical nonfiction that's really narrative driven. I mean, it's, you're a great storyteller. And so there's, there is this whole cast of characters. We're not going to get to every single one in your book, but there will be some folks that are, as I said, less well-known, more well-known. So I thought actually I'd just name some names at the top here. We're going to talk about a fellow named Herman Husband, who I doubt people have heard of, um, a guy named Thomas Young, of course, and then some, some more known folks like Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and Robert Morris and Thomas Paine and stuff like that. But this is going to be a, a character-full conversation. But yeah, maybe we could begin with a big picture overview. Can you talk about what your narrative of America's founding emphasizes that mainstream ones you know, typically don't uh, and how the story you tell challenges, this is one thing you say repeatedly, it challenges both sort of right-wing and liberal claims about this period in US history and about the constitution. Uh, and then finally, I just wanted to add for context for the listeners that this book, Founding Finance, came out in 2012, so 10 years ago. 
And from what I can tell from Twitter, you're working on a book that seems to be very related to these themes. And so, yeah, feel free if you want to include you some updates from your from your thinking over the last decade. But yeah, how does how does this book how is it set apart from other studies of of the, the same periods, similar characters, et cetera? Well, I think you know you you hit on it, and it is a theme of the of the podcast too. I mean, it's class conflict is like not just one of a number of interesting conflicts that. For me, I mean, begin the founding of the country, but is to me uh, a, sig- a significant main driver of forming the nation. That's not typically the way it's it's viewed, and I'm constantly kind of trying to push back against a kind of like, oh yeah, well there was that, and let's move on kind of thing. So my thing is to push it really hard. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say, hey, you guys are not balanced in your thinking. Let's talk about class. I'm kind of like. I'm kind of pushing that as a as a significant central story, the significant central story, really. That doesn't mean it's the only story, but since it's constantly overlooked and dismissed and marginalized, I begin to think more and more that it actually it must be the central story or people wouldn't be trying so hard to like get it out of the way. Um so that's kind of an you know kind of overview, overview, like that's the that's that. I mean, it's true that the book uh, we're talking about founding finance, it's it's interesting to be talking about it actually right now because it was, as you say, published uh, 10 years ago, I guess. It also had a kind of short shelf life because, as you know, I mean, I was writing very directly about current politics in the context of the founding moment. So I'm, it, it mentions very directly the Occupy movement and it mentions the Tea Party movement. And so it was written deliberately to be quite topical um, and that made it different from my other stuff. Uh, but, that, but that's kind of the, I mean, that's a short kind of superficial attempt to kind of address the question of what my work's kind of been about. It's true that I'm now working on a a new book. Actually, I just handed it in and I hope it comes out in like, say, a year or so, which does develop some of these themes uh, to another level. Some of its material that's already been covered in The Whiskey Rebellion, my first book, and uh, and in Founding Finance, and in my second book, Declaration, they're all telling different aspects of the same story. But but here I'm really focusing on on Hamilton in more detail in the Hamilton moment. And again, trying to push back against some of the, putting it somewhat crudely, the hero worship and the, uh, the, the lack of dimension that's gone along with the Hamilton craze of recent years. Yes, I absolutely. I want us to get into that, in, into the Hamilton craze. Just ask why, why, <laughs> why is it happening? Um, your book opens on the first day of the meeting that would become known as the United States Constitutional Convention. So it's the spring of uh, 1787 in Philadelphia, uh, which is you know probably the, the main site of a lot of the stories that you tell in this book. So we will keep coming back. We will keep coming back to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. But in those early pages of the book, you make vividly clear that the men gathered really fear democracy. And that's the word they use. They're pretty explicit about it. What did they mean by the word democracy? What were they so afraid of? And why do we have to understand that it did have an economic component to them very, very explicitly. The elites of the founding generation used that term for a number of different things. They were not like like anybody. They were not super consistent in their terminology all the time. In this particular case, when Edmund Randolph sort of brought the meeting together and was like, okay, here's what we got to do. He said, you know, the problem we have in this country is that we don't have sufficient checks on the democracy, which is one of the ways they did it. They talked about it. The democracy. They were talking about 
excessive, what they saw as excessive representation of the will of ordinary working people in government. Or in, so on the one hand, representation, too much representation of that point of view, the point of view of, of the working class, and sometimes just the powerful impact of the working class outside of legitimate means, like by riot and by, uh, by riot, basically, uh, violence and uh, attempts to pressure government to do things on behalf of ordinary people that, that were outside legitimate politics. So they meant both of those things. But putting all that together, it, they, were, they were really referring to a very large although not totally coherent at all times, movement of the working class in the country, which is to say the vast majority of people, uh, of free laborers in the country. Because when we talk about the, the founders, we're, we're, we're usually talking about those people at the, at the convention or the, you know, a certain number, a small number of, of famous names of, of very well-off, well-educated, upscale people. And it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that, of course, in real life, most work was being done by poor, middling to poor to very poor people. Um, and so that's what they feared. They feared the advance of those people into government, which had been happening sort of because of the need for majority support for the revolution and, and things like that. So it was a pushback against what they meant by democracy, which relates to things we mean by democracy, although it's not identical. So I think I should you know, underscore the fact that... Um, the movement on behalf of, of the working class was largely led by white men. So uh, uh, there's a lot of exclusion in that movement too. So it's not necessarily what we'd mean by democracy. Although there were women, uh, there were connect women who led uh, food riots and um, there were, there were many uh, non, non-members of the white male class that were, that were involved. But the leaders, again, when you get to leadership, you end up finding people like Herman Husband, who you mentioned, and Thomas Paine, and we're back in the land of white men. So some of this stuff is like angry white men versus other angry white men in a way that uh, does qualify the idea that they were really looking for a democracy. But that's what they were afraid of at the, at the convention. And it was, it, was, it was a known thing. It wasn't like, it wasn't like they didn't know what they were doing there. They all knew what they were doing there. And Randolph finally just said it. And the idea was that to push these people back, we have to form a national government. We don't have one. We need one. Exactly. You hinted at this in, in the in what you just said. But I mean, there was there were concrete struggles going on. I mean, one phrase to quote you, you say there was an open struggle between ordinary people and upscale investors. So this is happening during the revolutionary period. And it was playing out. And these were struggles. I'm going to quote a litany you give. There were struggles over cash, credit, debt, taxes, foreclosures, lending, you know, essentially access to economic opportunity and prosperity. And those have been edited out of our common memory of the period. And, you know, you, you said that again, when you said, well, what it is about this book, right? Like, why does this stuff keep getting erased? And so that, I guess, is my, my answer to my question, but what does your book bring in? It really is like, these were real concrete ongoing struggles over economic issues. And not to get ahead of us here, but maybe, you know, could you linger on one that's probably the one people at least know by name, Shay's Rebellion, which is later in the tale, but it's kind of emblematic of what these guys were worried about. Well, yeah, I mean, it's actually super causal of, of the of the convention itself, because it it was it was a serious uprising in Massachusetts coming out of Western Massachusetts, but it spread all over Massachusetts and other parts of New England. And the Shays Rebellion was part of a whole kind of intercolonial movement where these things were happening a bunch of places. It's just the most famous one, really. 
um, where they were just people were these were Revolutionary War veterans, regular people coming home, uh, being hit by incredibly crushing taxes, which were earmarked to pay interest to a small group of rich bondholders who were holders of the war debt. Um, so they were getting taxed horribly, coming home to a a, a new constitution the state constitution of Massachusetts, which actually tightened, tightened rules against voting, uh, made the, made it harder to vote than it had been before. And their farms are being foreclosed by the very same people who are the rich bondholders. They're also the people who hold, who are, who are, who are lenders to ordinary people and charging extraordinarily exorbitant uh, interest rates. And so then they get hit by this tax and then they get by, hit by another tax. And it just makes the whole thing look like a complete, the revolution, I mean, yeah, American independence, to these veterans, it looked like a complete scam. I mean, now things are, you know, it's meet the new boss kind of stuff. I mean, things are even worse than they were before in some ways. So they started shutting down banks. I mean, just, they weren't rioting in the classic old sense necessarily, because these are veterans. So they're marching, you know, in good order. They have officers, they're following orders. Um, You know, this is terrifying to elites around the country, because Henry Knox wrote a letter to George Washington in which he's, he's basically saying the whole, what all these people want to do in every state is they want to just seize power, divide property equally, you know, redistribute everything equally. Like we're not going to have any private property anymore around here. And if he was being a little bit uh, hyper, a little bit exaggerated, yeah, he probably was. But some of those people did want to do stuff like that. And this is, of course, terrifying to the small group of elite people who are very invested in, you know, their own property and their and their own wealth. Right. <laughs> but I would actually, can I add just one other thing to the Shays thing? Um, Shays Rebellion is the famous thing that, that kind of drives the elites to the convention. But there was another thing that went on in Massachusetts that I th- I really pushed the idea that this was equally important in scaring the elites of the of the country. Which was that uh, there was a there was a bank charter in Pennsylvania, and the bank was publicly chartered, but it was an elite, you know, a little small closed elite casino basically in Pennsylvania, which had a much more radical government, a radically democratic government. The legislature withdrew the bank's charter from its private owners because it's a public charter. And when Robert Morris, one of the the, uh, the richest merchant in America and one of those bank owners, said, you know, this is confiscatory, you're taking away my my charter. It was pointed out to him by the radical Democrats that, no, that charter is not your property. It's the property of the people. This was just as scary, I think, to the elites around the country as the Shays Rebellion, because you have in Pennsylvania, you've got this radically democratic government where actually through legitimate electoral means, people are being are able to express themselves and um, obstruct the power of wealth. And then in Massachusetts, with a conservative government, they'll do it illegally. But I think they're equally uh, frightening. When they said the democracy, no checks against the democracy, they meant some of these states are getting really democratic and other ones are just weak in suppressing it. Um, so I like to balance both the Shays Rebellion and the uh, the bank charter fight as kind of good, big, scary events that really sent those people into that room in, in Philadelphia. And we came away with a national government. Yeah. And when you said causal, I mean, Shays Rebellion is 1784. Five. So right before this is fresh on yeah, fresh on their right. minds. Um, so is it fair to say then that the founders were waging a war on two fronts, sort of a war without and a war within? We tend to talk about the war without the war for independence, the heroic war, whereas the other one's kind of a war for dominance, a, a war for class dominance. 
you know, and that one was just as important to them and brought them together in that space. Yeah, I think that there's a fundamental conflict in the revolution where, you know, the elites who are sort of like, we've got to have this revolution and get free of all this uh, oppression by Britain so we can, you know, run our businesses the way we want and so forth. Well, yeah, they wanted a revolution. Ordinary people in mass numbers also wanted a revolution because they thought it could be a revolution for, you know, changing things up uh, from the way they'd been for years in a conflict in which, you know, American elites versus American uh, regular people had been in a conflict for years. So the revolution seemed like an opportunity to bring these things together. But really, there's a fundamental conflict. The elites needed the people to be, you know, revolutionary. But they were not interested in sharing power and they were not interested in changing the economic structures that made them, you know, the elites. So there's a conflict going into the revolution. And that's that's these days. I mean, it used to be looked at much more closely. And I guess that's happening again some now. But that story of the conflict going in and the conflict coming out, which is a class conflict, certainly starting like post-war, post-World War II, that, that story started to get eradicated. And I'm not the only person trying to bring it back. In fact, if it weren't for certain very advanced scholars whose work I study, uh, I wouldn't know anything about it. But I'm trying to kind of bring it back and make it kind of a, I don't know, you said earlier, narrative, you know, uh, maybe less scholarly and more like storytelling. But yeah, that, that's the story. There's a fundamental conflict there. There's, there's two revolutions in a way, as one way to look at it. And then that fight goes on after the war. And while we still don't often look at the Constitution as kind of the elite attempt to resolve that fight in the elite's favor, that's how uh, I think that's how I think the Constitution really, really functioned. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think you're right there. There is a kind of shift. It feels like in, in consciousness and an understanding of the Constitution and its anti-democratic nature happening. And your book, I think it's important to say that your book does name different historians and debates, you know, going back to Charles Beard and others who had a, a more class analysis and the, the the sort of backlash against that and some some criticisms you levy. Um, but it I, it seems to me that as we attempt once again to talk about this dilemma, the constitutional dilemma, that it is all the more imperative that we put these very concrete class conflicts front and center so we can understand precisely what is wrong with this, this uh, powerful document. To add a bit more conflict into the mix, I mean, you know, there's not just the conflicts between the sort of ordinary Americans, as we said, and the the upscale guys, but the upscale guys have conflicts amongst themselves, but they put those aside when they're like, hold on, above all, we need to quell this economic populism or movement for popular finance, whatever we, right? Like they have their differences, you know, some of them are uh, a planter isn't part of the slaveocracy. Others, you know, are merchants. They're not 100% aligned, but they they know how to have solidarity when it when it matters. Yeah, it's fascinating that we always seem to want to look at the conflicts between, say, the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonian types, the state sovereignty people, and the kind of more like we need to have a national government here because those conflicts are real and. You know, I mean, they get together to do certain things, but then as soon as they get those things, they start fighting amongst themselves again. So it's not like it's nothing. It's very important, that conflict among the elites. Um, and it goes on uh, and still defines things we, we fight about today. But the thing is, I keep what I've been trying to do for so long is kind of triangulate that thing because everybody wants to look at these these two elite sides. But when they get to get, when they really get scared, 
you know, in 1786, 1787, really throughout the 1780s, this just keeps getting worse and worse because there isn't a powerful enough government to sit on this democratic um, and economically radical, uh, these movements. Well, they get together. And, you know, when they get together, they they are together. I mean, they had their fights. Everybody knows about this, right? So <laughs> they had their fights at the Constitutional Convention. Some people ended up not signing it. Um, yeah, that's all true, and I don't overlook it, but what was the context for it? What got them together in the room in the first place? Um, this, you know, you'll hear a lot about, well, it just wasn't very efficient. Um, there were issues around trade and et cetera, et cetera. Yes, true, but those issues take place in a context, which is a, which is a class fight um, in which more and more ordinary people were either through legitimate means, like as in Pennsylvania, or through kind of, you know, riot means, as in Massachusetts, scaring the hell out of the elites on both sides of that equation. And what were their what were their lives like, right? Because the part of the myth of this period is that, you know, everybody was a freeholder, you know, at least the the free white men, right? And yeoman farmers, and there's an abundance of stolen land for this uniquely American brand of freedom to manifest. But that's, you know, what you're saying is, no, that's really, that's, that's actually not the case. Massive landlords are actually part of the American tradition, land speculation. Yeah. So what, what, what was the reality here? What actually, where, what were the conditions of these people, many of whom were tenants? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we love this idea of the sort of the independent yeoman farmer. It is already an incredibly reductive, even that sort of glorified vision is reductive. I mean, that's always a white dude, you know, with his faithful wife and children with enough land to get by and, you know, independent. And, you know, this this is a, a fantasy that's just very powerful. It still remains very powerful. But I mean, there were massive foreclosure crises basically marking this period. So to the extent, of course, many people owned their own property and so forth, but they were frequently, just to get ahead at all, you know, deeply indebted and got into cycles of bad debt. And I mean, and this debt, of course, is to those very same people that we were just talking about, the elites, who were in the business of lending money at exorbitant interest rates to uh, indep- supposedly independent sort of yeoman farmer, but farmers, but they're not independent very long uh, in those kinds of debt cycles. And so then foreclosures occur and mass foreclosures occurred. I mean, it was it was really bad. And then those independent farming people and artisans as well become essentially, I mean, they end up working for the people who foreclosed them, right? So there were mass epidemics of this. And, and the people who were being foreclosed had a very clear sense. I mean, I learned this years ago from reading, before he was even publishing Beyond uh, Dissertation, I learned this from the work of Terry Boughton, um, the historian Terry Boughton, I mean, the people involved, the ordinary people involved were extremely savvy about the economic nature of these problems, more so in some ways than a lot of people seem to be today, is I think one of Boughton's points in his dissertation. He may have, you know, I don't want to quote people's dissertations and then, or cite them, and then really their thinking's developed, and maybe it's not how they want to be cited. But it it was eye-opening to me long ago to come across that work and realize Oh, people actually had ways of talking about these things that people today are less are less savvy about. But yeah, this 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 myth of the kind of westward moving yeoman farming family. It's not that that didn't ever happen, of course, but it's there were whole periods where that was just kind of going away, and people were quite you know educated, uh, even if they weren't formally educated, and how that was working. They they knew they were being taxed to enrich individual, you know, to to enrich to further enrich rich people. 
Yeah, here it makes me think of the work of uh, Casey Park, who's talked a lot about the mortgage and foreclosure as tools of dispossession of of indigenous land. You know that these debt instruments are wielded as a weapon, and then they also came for the the white working class. But I think that that's important context to your story. These are you know deeply felt financial harms, <laughs> and people, the people experiencing them had ideas for how to solve them, and they were actually pretty right on um, ideas in many cases. Um, I guess before we start digging into the the characters and some of the stories, you know, I thought it would be interesting to to put my cards on the table. You know, part of what brought me to your book and what interests me you know, is your book discusses two forms of debt, right? So first, these private debts, the the debts that lead to these crises, foreclosure to these tax debts, you know, that that fuel these small d democratic rebellions, and then the centrality of public debt, of the national debt, tip, uh, specifically the war debt in the story and the need to pay or the supposed need to pay bondholders uh, who are, you know, definitely of a, a wealthy investor class, you know, and I'm I'm the founder of something called the Debt Collective, which we we are the first union of debtors. And when we formed in the wake of Occupy Wall Street, actually, you know, we thought we were doing something really novel by organizing around debt. We saw ourselves as responding both to the 2008 financial crisis, but also to changes in the economy that we um, understood as uh, coming out of the late 70s of financialization or neoliberalism, right, where debt and and the finance sector became more more prominent. And it was only when I started researching my book on democracy and sort of reading some stuff, you know, reading more of the founders' writings and more about those debates that I started to realize that actually debtors' revolts were much older than I had assumed. Um, and one of my favorite quotes is uh, Madison talking about how, you know, a sort of more democratic system would lead to various wicked projects including the wicked project of debt abolition, but also, like you said, the equal distribution of property, basically the implementation of progressive taxes, et cetera. And your book really you know, goes so much deeper and adds, adds, again, these new dimensions to my understanding. But really, it, it quite a surprise, I think, to me to see that actually, without knowing it, I'm part of this American tradition of revolt against, against what you call lenders and landlords. And in fact, you know, our main work at the Debt Collective is you know, we see tenants as debtors, back rent is debt, right? So we are fighting literally lenders and landlords, just like the people in this book. And, you know, the founders were very conscious about the clash between creditors and debtors, you know, and that being sort of a pivotal, pivotal divide, they name it, the creditors won the day, but the debtors are still here fighting. Anyway, so that's, that's sort of my interest in your book. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you came to this topic before we, we get into the, the actual substance. Yeah. I mean, I'm listening to you and thinking, you know, um, yeah, I, I became aware of your, I mean, the whole Occupy thing, I, I was already into this, but when Occupy occurred, I just felt like, oh, wow. I mean, this dovetails, you know, it's sort of like the flip side, a flip side for me. Like I, my head's in the 18th century, right? I mean, and, and the 19th century, like, oh, this is actually happening right now. Oh, wait a second, you know, um, that, so, you know, I've been following that for all this time and just always been fascinated by it. I mean, um, you know, this is not a, a new issue and it's also not an old issue. I got into it by accident. I was trying to understand the Whiskey Rebellion of the 1790s. And it, it, I just backed into this. I, I didn't under, know what was going on with that. And yet I sold a book uh, on it uh, during the time of the kind of the founder chic moment where there were biographies of all the founders coming out and everything. And I, uh, I got a book deal. It was my first book deal. And I started looking into like, well, what 
that the Whiskey Rebellion, I thought it sounded cool, you know, but that's literally kind of where I came from on it. I didn't know much. And I just started stumbling into this like debt issue. And I was just very struck by it, like everything you're talking about happening right now and the fights that are going on now. But this is around, uh, this is in the year uh, 2003, I guess, is when I got that that first book contract. And I was just, I, I, I thought I was going to write a kind of a, a kind of quick, breezy, fun, you know, founder chic kind of book. And I just went into the library and didn't come out for a long, long time. And when I came out, I was just kind of like stumbling around like, whoa, it's all different from what I thought it was. It's much cooler as a story and much more timely. But I I didn't realize the nature. These economic issues of the 18th century were kind of unknown to me until I stumbled into them. And then I got just kind of obsessed obsessed. And, um, so it, it kind of went from there, but I didn't intend, you know, I didn't, I didn't intend to find these things out or get so interested in them. Well, a happy accident for, for us, I think, um, you know, we're kind of going to go through the book uh, in pretty faithfully to the way you've structured it, you know, in, in chapter two, you introduce this very interesting character who we've already mentioned, Mr. Husband, who was leading a movement North Carolina regulation, is that? Or the regulators? Yeah, yeah, the regulators, yeah, the regulation. The regulation, yeah. the regulators. You know, my family has lived in North Carolina for almost two decades. I've been to Alamance County where this guy and his, his buddies led their revolts. I'd never heard a, a word of this. Who is he? What was he up to? Why should we care? That's amazing. I mean, yeah, he's an... I wrote about him in The Whiskey Rebellion, my first book. I've written about him in Founding Finance, what we're talking about right now. And... uh one more time, when my next book comes out, if he does not become a known character, uh, more known, I mean, than to people like you and me, I'm, I'll be, I will have done all I can do for this guy who really should, I think, be a central finger, figure in, in the founding period. He was weird, you know, but that's what makes him kind of great also. Herman Husband had a, had a vision of a whole different way of structuring economics in America And when I say, but the thing is, and this is one thing that makes it very difficult, I think, for people on the left sometimes to embrace him, although he was an ancestor of the left, American left, you know, really the most, most important ancestor in some ways to me intellectually anyway. But he had a vision of a, of a, of a completely different kind of democratic society. And it was an economic vision that's very aligned with, with things that we didn't really start talking about in, in so many words until like the 20th century, maybe. But the problem with him is he had an actual vision, like he had a religious vision. He saw visions, like, you know, a Joan of Arc saw visions. I mean, literally that level of thing, like a William Blake, uh, uh, that, that kind of thing. Well, I think this makes him hard for people to sort of cope with. Um, but I think it also makes him fascinating because... He was intellectually very uh, adroit, and very smart, and, and self-taught and everything. But he also just had this powerful sense of, of these issues of right and wrong, these economic issues of right and wrong as being, you know, on a, on a high, high moral plane, like, you know, ordained by, ordained by God and biblical. And for his time, that didn't make him that weird because back then, I mean, you know, going back before his time, but like Isaac Newton, the great scientist, physicist, wrote a, an exegesis of, um, of the book of Revelation, for example. So there was not the split between rationality and religious experience that, that you know, has come up lately. It's very recent and starts sort of around husband's time, you could say, like post-enlightenment. Um, but a lot of people thought he was crazy. And my thing is kind of like, yeah, maybe he was kind of crazy because if you can imagine things like Social Security 
kind of New Deal stuff in the, he started imagining these things like before the revolution, so the first half of the 18th century even, say, in 1750s, 60s, um, and 70s, well, yeah, maybe you have to be crazy, but that should make him kind of a, I don't know, paradigmatic, like American for us to get excited about. And the regulation that you mentioned, I mean, that was his first real big political action. Regulation was, you know, it seems so funny because, you know, we talk about uh, regulation now, um, regulatory economics and stuff. Regulation was a common term then for the people just getting up and regulating the economy because they didn't have the vote. Um, they didn't have access to, you know, legitimate means or whatever. They would um, regulate. And that mean, what that meant was they would riot because that was the only, you know, means they had. They didn't have legal means. Yeah, we need to rebrand rioting as regulating. I think that will help it. <laughs> yeah, let's just regulate some of this stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's it. This is the, the thing about the period that so my, blows my mind and blew my mind when I started looking into it when I didn't expect it to, is that so much of this stuff is so contemporary. So, a husband was a leader of the regulation, the North Carolina regulation, and you know, it's amazing that people in North Carolina don't even know that much about it, although some do. You know, it's a an action. You know, it's a it's a regulatory action. It's a uh, they shut down debt courts and they did this with violence. I mean, th- this is the thing that has to be understood. I think it's husband had a weird attitude toward the popular violence that was this organized popular violence to kind of get control of the economy and make it less oppressive. He was actually nonviolent. He was he had he had been a Quaker for a while. He kept going from religion to religion because nothing could really match his vision. But for a long time, he was a, a Quaker until he was sort of thrown out of the Quaker meeting for being too radical, even for them. He had he believed firmly in nonviolence, which also just makes him so interesting because the only way to actually regulate stuff back then when ordinary people didn't have the vote, and I mean like, I mean even white men, if you didn't have enough property, you didn't have the vote, you couldn't run for office. You had even more property to run for office. Well, he, you know, he was caught up in all that. Violence was the only way to really make a point back then in certain ways, but he was nonviolent. And so this, he kept running into these kind of nightmarish contradictions in his, in his beliefs and he hung with it. And so that he, the North Carolina regulation was put down by the, uh, by the Royal governor of North Carolina with troops. Many people were hanged. Some were hanged summarily in the field. Others were tried and hanged. Husband escaped at the last minute on horseback after trying to negotiate a settlement in which he knew he'd be hanged, but he was trying to get his comrades off the hook with a settlement. That didn't work out. He galloped away. I mean, it's pretty dramatic stuff. And um, he fled into the back country of Western Pennsylvania. His wife and many children following at a distance joined him there. So it's, it's a kind of a, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I don't know, dramatic stuff involved in that. But he, uh, He's a really amazing American founding figure because of his incredibly like New Deal level, great society level beliefs, which came to him, as he described it frequently, in visions and were biblically inspired. And this guy, you know, he he had comrades who were hung because he he wasn't acting alone. He did organize. He he organized others to act in concert. I mean, absolutely. And, you know, from the brief chapter in this book, they made inroads. It sounded like, I mean, they were through, through, you know, violent tactics in some cases and, uh, you know, through their demands, they were, they were forcing the power structure to negotiate to some degree. I mean, this was. Yeah. Sometimes these regulations, I mean, the one he was involved in the North Carolina regulation ended up getting put, put down, uh, militarily. 
And actually, you know, I mentioned the royal governor, but I should clarify that. The royal governor did, was, the, was the, you know, the power, the executive at the time. But we, sh- we should keep in mind when we talk about husband's regulation being put down, or that regulation, he was just one of the leaders, to your point, that it was put down by the governor, who was like the military arm of the government. But many of the people pushing in the legislature to have that regulation put down are the very same people who were joining in Stamp Act protests and other more elite protests against royal authority. They were happy to have royal authority put down these really populist, really grassroots movements for equalizing things. Um, but they were also at odds with the governor over their own issues around around that that led to the revolution. So that's an interesting conflict right there. And many of the former regulators of North Carolina actually became loyalists because they they were pretty sure their best bet didn't lie with those East Coast elites who were rebelling against the king and parliament, but actually would lie with the king and parliament who were at least sometimes um, he sometimes would listen, but on that, but on, t- I, I just had to get that in cause I just remembered it, but to get to your point about, um, about riot and so forth, I mean, they did sometimes have an impact because, uh, riot was considered even by elites at times back then. I mean, the, the North Carolina regulation just went too far. Riot was sometimes considered by elites kind of almost a necessary like safety valve and sometimes you could get some of what you wanted. You could get economic uh, relief by rioting, and it wasn't it wasn't as you know sort of it wasn't as cut and dried as we might see it now. So they sometimes did succeed in getting the you know legitimate government, which was the you know the elite government, to actually do some things like give easy term loans through what were called land banks um, and other kind of populist uh, agrarian kind of um, finance. But it was, but it was spasmodic and always conflicted. But they did sometimes have some success. Yeah, yeah. I have this quote. So now to go back to your your point about um, uh, Parliament and the Crown, I want to read something that I highlighted. Parliament and the Crown were not the or only oppressors in colonial American society for many ordinary people, right? Um, and they and you say they weren't the most direct oppressors. Rich Americans were. So these you know, these Eastern elites you mentioned. And I, I guess just to get it a, a bit more visceral, like what what were the oppressions that husband and his fellows were, were railing against? And what were some of the solutions? Because he had his big kind of like proto New Deal vision of social security and economic and, and economic egalitarian society. But, but in the here and now, they were arguing for these things like, you know, some debt relief, paper currency. What, what, what were they day-to-day struggling with and what were some of the solutions they were fighting for? They day-to-day struggled with what they called a lack of, you know, a lack of money, which was their term for, for depression, really, you know, an economic depression. They knew what the economic depressions were. Money was gold and silver, you know, real money. This was, this was a huge problem. You know, husband proposed going off the gold standard way back then. And even people on the left back then were like, whoa, that's crazy, you know. But he, he, he thought that that was part of the problem, was that everything was pegged to gold and silver. And he was kind of right. So, um, yeah, so they wanted, they wanted like paper money issues at, in low denominations. Um, they wanted low-term, easy-term loans pr- provided by government. Um, and things that would kind of ease their, their lack of money, the depressions that haunted the countryside. They also wanted an end to the kind of what they called corruption. It's not an anachronism. They called it corruption. 
the fact that, you know, a few families everywhere locally were kind of had all the all the government jobs and ordinary people were being taxed to provide, you know, nice stipends to people whose job was basically to collect those taxes. I mean, for example, you know, um, there was a, or a multitude of a different kind of regulation, you know, regulations on behalf of the elites, like papers, stamps, you know, Stamp Act, stamps, you had to get, you had to get stuff stamped, you got to pay somebody for everything you're going to do. Meanwhile, you're being foreclosed on, you're becoming a, a worker for your, you were formerly had your own little place, now you're becoming a worker for your, for your uh, creditors. Um, they wanted an end to all that kind of stuff. And they, they were quite articulate about it. I don't mean just husband, I mean, the ordinary people that he, of whom he was one of a number of leaders were quite articulate about it. It wasn't sort of confusing to them how all this worked. It was very clear to them how all this worked to their detriment. So there were a number of things that just really bad economic conditions stalking the countryside in in periodic waves. And they thought they had some ideas about how to stabilize things and make things better for more people. Right. And so let's go from here to Pennsylvania, because you mentioned that this is when the, the nightmare starts getting way too real and people start putting some of these ideas into into law husband makes his way up to pennsylvania as we already discussed with with his family in tow um what's happening there let's just let's tell that story a bit a a bit more you know it's uh without without getting too nostalgic for what could have been (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's amazing you know what happened in pennsylvania is kind of amazing it's the home on the one hand of the money people right um, it's the absolutely the money center of the country. When the country was not centralized at all, politically, really, except around the war, economically, to some degree, it was somewhat centralized in Pennsylvania because the richest merchants lived there. So you have that on the one hand, and then you have this amazing thing that happens uh, in the lead up to in the lead up to declaring independence. You get um, somehow ordinary people because they're needed to fight in the war, organize to sort of take over the militia system. But the militia system is needed. I mean, it's a war. You're, Britain's about to invade. We need ordinary people, you know, armed and ready. In Pennsylvania, thanks to some very, very adroit organizing by some really brilliant people, uh, whose names are not, again, not that well known, Cannon, Young, um, and others, um, along with Thomas Paine, who is well known, they act, they uh, they organized the militia system throughout the colony, um, now becoming an independent province or a state, um, and they uh, they organized that class of people who were the ordinary people who served in the militia, the privates, and they organized them as a force for essentially. I mean, it's a it's a it's a really good slam bang story, but I'll just keep it as simple as I can. They organized that class to just basically rebel against the state, uh, what was now becoming the state assembly, the provincial assembly, which was manned by, staffed by, manned by literally um, elites. Um, and they shut it down and took it over and wrote a new constitution. And, you know, 1776 in Philadelphia, you know, people go there and they see all the famous sites and we know all about you know, all the famous people in 1776. One thing, incredible thing that happened in 1776 in Philadelphia and throughout Pennsylvania is the takeover of, of legitimate politics uh, by the working class of the, of, the, of the former colony now state. That actually happened and they wrote a, a new constitution and they made it so that there was no property qualification for voting, which was extremely radical at the time. And much further than that, they made it so there was no property qualification for holding office, which was 
just you know out of sight to most most elite people just couldn't even imagine that you could have anything but sheer anarchy in that situation and they started passing laws for like debt relief for ordinary people and things like that and if you're going to tax we're going to earmark these taxes for widows and orphans of the war and on the privates and stuff and this was you know just kind of unheard of i mean this was democracy with the qualifications that i brought up before right about democracy who was left out we're still talking about white men serving in in public office right and white men voting so we always have to i always have to flag that because it's kind of exciting what they did i mean it's it's amazing really it's not democracy you know there's a lot of exclusion right so we always have to keep that in mind but it was it was i'm going to i'm going to make the case i make the case i try to that it that it was radical anyway because what it what this revolution did was disconnect cut connection between property ownership and representation in government, representative government. And that was radical. Nobody among the property owners thought that was feasible at all. And you mentioned in the book that Young and, and is it Cannon? Yeah, Cannon, yeah. Yes, uh, James Cannon. James Cannon, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Thomas Young and James Cannon, that one thing they tried to get into the Constitution was an equalization of property and a limit on how much property people could lo- own, right? Yeah, they actually tried that. I mean, incredible, right? I mean, they tried that then. Even even the left of the day was sort of like, whoa, whoa, that's getting, you're getting a little. Um, but they, so that didn't get into the Pennsylvania Constitution. But the fact, that, I mean, they brought it up. They tried to get it in. Um, and of course, now we, you know, going back to like what scared the elites into forming the Constitutional Convention, you know, how did that bank charter get taken away in Pennsylvania? It's because of things like this, radical things like this. Right. And, but before they were squelched, they were needed. And this is the kind of, right, the the sort of savvy strategic move that elites made. Um, and and so that was, do you want to talk about how in the, in the lead up to independence? I mean, part of it was that, as you said, these were people in the militia. They were necessary. That gave them an opening um, and made some you know, figures who are well-known like Samuel Adams form alliances they would never have otherwise made with this, with this rabble. Yeah. The people we just talked about remain pretty unknown. I mean, Herman Husband shows up in that, in that radical assembly a little later, but um, he's not well-known and, and, you know, Cannon, Young, et cetera, are not known. Payne is a, se- a bit of a separate case, but they made common cause with people who are known because there were these people in the, in the, in the, Continental Congress in the State House in Pennsylvania that we call Independence Hall, pushing for American independence. These members of the elite who were pro-independence going up against members of the elite who were anti-independence. So common cause was made between these kind of street and rural radicals because they knew if they could get independence, maybe they could get control of government. Um, and the elites who had no interest in that, like the Adams cousins um, and Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, especially, and others and others, a kind of temporary common cause was made to overturn that government of Pennsylvania because that was the government standing in the way of declaring independence. So not the radical government, the the, the precursor, the... Yeah, yeah. That's, sorry, that's what yeah. I mean. Yes, before the radical... The reason the radical government came in, you could say... Is that when is that the non-radical government was standing in the way of independence, and so a bunch of non-radicals from Massachusetts and Virginia made common cause with the, the street, in a sense, which wanted to overturn, the government of Pennsylvania. So you get this kind of oddball alliance in 1776 that, w- without that alliance, I don't think you know. I think there's the the whole what if and w- would would the country have declared independence? I mean, 
on July 2nd, which is really when it happened. I mean, you know, it might have happened anyway, but the way it happened was by people like Samuel and John Adams who wanted to who wanted to turn Pennsylvania's government to independence, making common cause with people they did not have common cause with in other ways, and toppling the government, the legitimately elected government, uh, it's important to, re- to remember, by the terms of the time, the legitimately elected government was overturned by a weird alliance between elites from other states and the people of Pennsylvania. Yeah, a little coup. But this is the kind of... Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, and you know, all of these, I think for people who are there's not sort of really clear lessons that it can operationalize, but you you see how important these these odd alliances and coalitions are and how sort of, you know, happenstance in a way this history is, you know, in, in your book and how messy it really is. Um, yeah, it's messy. Uh, so one figure that comes in here in a big way, and we mentioned him at the top, but I think now's this time to shine is um, Alexander Hamilton. First Treasury Secretary of the United States. And he, Wait, who's he now? Uh, you know, he is. Uh, he comes off as as quite the savvy uh, guy in this in this story. Problematic for sure. Um, and you know, I do want to lift up a really interesting piece that you you sent my way that you did on him in the Boston Review all the way back, I think, in two thousand and seven. And even then, you're pointing out that Hamilton is the subject was the subject of a lot of hagiography. From all sides of the political spectrum, um, and I would say it seems like that's only increased. You know, even uh, leftists are kind of having a Hamilton revival, and of course, there's the eponymous musical that I will never see because I don't like musicals. I like music. I don't like musicals, <laughs> and I don't like Alexander Hamilton. So, yeah, um, it's not for you. Really. It's just not for me. But we'll we'll get into maybe his relationship to the the national debt question later. But you know what. Give us a bit of a, an overview of your take on him. How is he, how is he in the mix uh, in Pennsylvania at this moment? Well, yeah, his role, I mean, of course, he's now, you know, everybody, in a weird way, I, I, when I started writing about this stuff, you know, you're talking about pieces that go pretty far back now. It, it was like uh, a lot of people just didn't see Hamilton as that important or even have a really clear idea of who he was. Everything's changed in the sense that with the musical now, like nobody has any idea who he was because there's this completely glorified version of him that comes out of this kind of um, Hamilton love that well pre-existed the musical uh, that you were just referring to. I mean, among across party lines, going going back to the, going back to like William Crystal and David Brooks writing about him as a kind of avatar of national conservative kind of national greatness. Yeah, all the way to the left. I mean, uh, Christian Parenti talking about him as a kind of a, an avatar of, um, you know, which is true, government activism, for sure. Um, so, yeah, he comes into the story in a weird way because um, he was he was very young. It's hard to talk about him now because everyone's like, oh, yeah, I know all about that guy. He was young and scrappy and, you know, because um, of the musical. But he was young. He, w- he, was, he wasn't like at the Constitutional. I mean, he was at the Constitutional Convention. He was not, you know, in Philadelphia in 1776. He joined the army and he was on Washington's staff and he was extremely bright. I mean, there's an extremely, um, you know, focused and um, eager to redo the entire country along lines that he was reading about i mean he was a self auto he was he was educated at the college that became columbia but he was um he was also an autodidact of of economics and finance and public finance the thing that i liked i like pitting him against these people no one's ever heard of like husband and and young and so forth because you know what they have in common 
even though they're on opposite sides, they have in common the, the idea that the economic nation kind of is the nation. Like, that's what you're going to have. So it, we talk about finance, people start to go to sleep, you know. But both sides were, nowadays, I mean. But back then, both sides saw finance and economics as kind of the, the key exciting things to, like, how you're going to change everything, how you're going to make things go the way you want them to go. And I think we're seeing some revival of that now. But for a long time, it just hasn't been, people have just like started to fall asleep talking about these things. So what both Hamilton, what Hamilton and people like Thomas Young and James Cannon and Thomas Paine have in common across a huge divide is that they at least, they, they all got, they all get this. And Hamilton got it really early. He taught it to himself largely. And he had as a mentor, however, as the revolution was ending and he went, he went to, the, he got into the Continental Congress post, post uh, declaration. He had a mentor, Robert Morris, who, again, is not that well-known because he's such an unedifying character. I think people who want to be excited about the founders don't really like looking at Morris because he was a corrupt money guy. But without him, I don't think the uh, United States would have won the revolution. So that's, I think both of those things are true, and that irony should be just you know kind of enjoyed to some degree. So Hamilton comes uh, into the orbit of Morris, and he's already a self-taught really well self-taught in public finance with the Brit with the British banking system and a lot of British uh, finance systems as his uh, as his model Morris likes that too and they form this kind of partnership to try to bring about American nationhood so that really it's the economic you know the idea of, of forming a, 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 a consolidated economic system that has them really pushing to form a nation out of this kind of falling apart confederacy confederation you know with once they once they're winning the war uh you know it's kind of like well this whole thing's going to fall apart because we only got together to win the war they're like we got to keep it together we've got to consolidate it we need a national government and their inspiration for that hamilton and morris uh, hamilton the student and morris the mentor with the student kind of soon to outstrip the the mentor um they uh they saw nationhood as the solution to kind of consolidating wealth in the way they thought, you know, you could make another version of Britain here. And and debt, public debt, was key to that weaving together of the nation. Literally the bonds of bondholders. Yes, this is the thing. I mean, this is the, the thing Hamilton kind of learned from Morris and ran with. Uh, in order to fight the war... Uh, in order to get a hold of some money to fight the war back in 1776 when all that stuff happened the only place there were a couple places to go one was one was other countries that were also at odds with england so there was foreign debt and so often when people talk about the founding debt of the united states they focus exclusively not even just overemphasize but focus exclusively on the foreign debt uh, to you know holland and france and so forth and yeah that existed the exciting piece of the debt and the big piece of the debt to people like Morris and Hamilton, because they saw it as nation building, was the domestic debt, which simply meant issuing bonds bearing 6% no tax interest. Not bad. To, yeah, exactly. To, to, a rich, to a small group of rich people. And of course, they had to make them pretty attractive because if they lost the war, I mean, this was, you know, you're betting on like winning a war, somehow getting paid, not paid back. A, yes, paid back someday, but also getting your 6% every year, you know, et cetera. Like, who's going to do this? Um, it was a risky investment, but they made it very sweet and they got investors, most many of whom were Morris's personal friends and part of his personal, uh, 
you know, his personal circle. Um, so it was a very, very inside thing to fund the war. And so this is where the public debt becomes, you know, in my new book, I'm trying to, you know, I keep trying to go at this. I'm like, we talk about the public debt of the United States. Everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, wow, the debt, debt. Mm." You know, it's like bad. We got to get deal with this debt problem. And it's almost as if like when Hamilton later becomes treasury secretary, well, there's all this debt. He's got to like face up to it and find ways to pay it off and stuff. This is not how Hamilton and Morris saw the public debt. They saw it as a massive opportunity to consolidate wealth in the, in the hands of the class, Morris's class, really, who they believed were kind of the drivers of, going to be drivers of big projects like infrastructure and, you know, industrialization and exports and all the stuff they wanted for the country. So the debt is a positive thing to them. One way you phrase it is that this is not about paying off the debt. Just like today, it's not about paying off the national debt. It, they, Hamilton and Morse wanted to fund the debt. They wanted to keep it paying that interest to consolidate power, as you said. And, and the phrase that you go back to from Morse is open the purses of the people. And so it, it's quite important that I think we highlight the regressive nature of these bond payments, right? They didn't want the wealthy to pay back the wealthy. <laughs> Yeah, it was very precisely regressive, right? Right. Yes, that's right. That's a good way to put it. You spread the payback around uh, through a lot of people. That's how you concentrate. And it's not. I shouldn't even say payback. These, the, hopefully, for the from the, from the point of view of the bondholders, the idea was for for generations, maybe get paid interest. You know, be making money on your money with a slow paydown schedule. And the way you do that is by taxing more people um, and keeping the burden off the class you're trying to benefit. And they didn't make any bones about this. Uh, as you said, you know, Morris had opened the purses of the people. They weren't pretending it was anything else. And yet, when people talk about it now, biographies of Hamilton, it's just like, well, there was this mound of debt that had to get paid off. No, no, no. There was this mound of debt that they were trying to build. They saw it almost, you know, to me, it's a character. In, my, in, in the books I write, the debt's almost a character, uh, you know, of, of, of its own. They, they wanted to feed it. They wanted to grow it. They wanted to make it an engine of national growth as funded by, you know, ordinary people. So it's very precisely regressive, as you said. And they, they didn't see that as a problem. They saw that as a benefit. Right. And the, the benefit is flowing precisely to the, the class of, of lenders and landlords, right? These are the speculators. I mean, that that's Morris's cohort. And, you know, he is a, a character. I mean, sort of there's, there's right two towering figures backing Hamilton up before he becomes a towering figure in his own right. There's Washington, who he's, you know, works alongside. And there's Morris, who is, as you said, less known. And a musical about him might actually be worth going to see because <laughs> the guy, part of why he is written out is that he is unsavory. I mean, he ends his career in a debtor's prison. And it was his, you know, he did have an enormous appetite for risk. You know, it certainly wasn't uh, certain that these bets would pay off and that the war would be won. And there's something about him. He was like, a, a, a obviously very needed in that moment, you know, because he was the money man. But then, yeah, they want to sort of distance themselves because he's uncouth. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, I love him as a character because he's fun. He's, you know, he's he was a gregarious guy. Uh, he He entertained. He just was showy and all the things you would kind of think. He's kind of like a, a proto robber baron type, American type. And, um, but as such, you know, it's, it's one of the great facts that I don't, it's kind of incommensurable. Like he was completely corrupt 
by any modern standard, but I, he was also corrupt by the standards of the day by people who cared about things like that. He mingled. Prob- he was the superintendent of finance for the for the Congress, and he mingled personal and public and private money without compunction. To him, it was just like, oh, it's all good, you know. And in a way, it was in this. If 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 your goal is to kind of win the war, it's hard to imagine winning the war without him doing that kind of stuff. So that just leaves people today with kind of a, you know, a quandary. And I think it's a quandary most people prefer not to, you know, consider. So that's why we don't hear a lot about Robert Morris. But he was, if Washington was the most powerful person in the country, maybe at that time as the general, the commander of the, of the army. But I think Morris was at least as powerful as Washington. And he was writing his own ticket all the way. And if he hadn't, it's completely unclear that uh, independence would have, you know, the war would have been won. So, like, what, is, what do we do with that, you know? <laughs> Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win – Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community by Helen Schiller. This book tells the fascinating true story of an individual radical organizer turned independent Chicago City Council member and her 40-year struggle for justice in Chicago. Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, Alderwoman for Chicago's 33rd Ward, says that, quote, Helen Schiller's work inside and out of the Chicago City Council is a model for all those seeking to make real change in the world. From her tireless work challenging gentrification, police abuse, and homophobia, Schiller never lost sight of her roots and always put the struggle of poor and working class people first. No matter where you live and organize, there is much to be learned from Helen's inspiring and courageous life story. Read this book. Find Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win by Helen Schiller now at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. You know, you make very clear in the book that the policies that Morris wanted, that he inspired Hamilton to want, were diametrically opposed to what the economic radicals want. I mean, they wanted, you know, paper currencies, right? They need they needed money to use their phrase, or, you know. And this guy is like, no way. <laughs> yeah, people talk about, oh, you know, what what was it? A class war? I mean, aren't you exaggerating? It's like class. We wouldn't want to be talking about class warfare at the time of the revolution. I mean, come on. Well, I mean, he saw it as a class war, as a class war, and and so did the people he was warring against, the ordinary people. I mean, the the uh, that constitution, the radical constitution of of Pennsylvania, he was just you know this is his turf. He's outraged by it, and I uh, we spoke earlier about how they took his bank charter away, and he was like, "That's my bank charter," and they're like, "No, it's not. It's the public bank charter." This this couldn't be more diametrically opposed, you know, um, and yet so and this is just another you know incredible sort of Philadelphia story in the sense that. Right there, I mean, it was occupied by the British for a good good bit of the war too. So it's kind of the government's kind of moving around, and the finance world's trying to survive. But you know, it's focused on Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. You have like the most dynamic economy in terms of like what merchants want. You know, the the rich people are all there and making money off the war. You know, just privateering off the war, 
And you have the most democratic government, you know, I don't know, ever seen, maybe. And they're at absolute war with each other right there in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a class war, and it was a, a legitimate fight between classes over who gets to govern and how is government, on whose behalf is government supposed to operate? This fight took many forms. It got pretty dirty. And one of the most sort of intense manifestations of the links that Morris and his buddy Hamilton were willing to go to is the Newburgh crisis, which is a crisis I had never heard of before reading this book. Uh, this is 1783, I believe. What is happening in Newburgh? Who's playing whom? What are the what are the stakes and the machinations? The issue for Morris and Hamilton in the Continental Congress was to get a tax passed that the Congress could levy against everybody throughout the country. It was actually going to be levied against merchants. It was an import tax, but the for Morris it was just a wedge. Once he once they got that he, through the Congress, he felt they could get all kinds of other taxes that would affect more people and kind of take some of the burden of off his people, the merchants. But it starts with an import tax. Uh, called, they called it the impost. And it's related to paying these, these, these war debts. The idea was to take, get this tax um, throughout the country so there would be money earmarked for paying the bondholders their interest, that small group of bondholders their interest regularly. Um, because as they see peace on the horizon... What's going to hold this whole thing together? I mean, the states are going to go their separate ways. Uh, the democracy, as they called it, was making inroads, not only in Pennsylvania, but elsewhere. I mean, they, the bondholders couldn't see how they were going to get paid their interest um, and how their children were, to, were going to become fabulously wealthy and not have to work ever. Uh, and that was, the, that was the idea. So where's that going to come from? You know, uh, if, we, if this whole thing falls apart, the Congress becomes inert um, and there's no centralization, where are we going to get the money for this? So the idea was to pass a tax that was pervasive throughout the country and operating not through the state systems, which were so cumbersome and subject to popular pressures and so forth, but by the Continental Congress itself, by what they were calling the federal government, which was a big deal to try to get through because taxing power is a sovereign power the way they saw it. And um, the states were sovereign. And this Continental Congress was just supposed to be a meeting of states. Like, it shouldn't have its own taxing power. That's uh, the, the state's rights people thought that was a road to, you know, creating a, a national government, which they still didn't want to do. So to get that tax passed, it just kept running into trouble in the Congress. And they kept thinking they were going to get it passed, and then they couldn't get it passed. And uh, there's a, no a lot of nuance there that I'll skip forward. I'll skip forward to, like, the exciting fighting part, which is, like, suddenly turning up in... Philadelphia are some officers of the Continental Army who are basically, they walk in and they basically say to the Continental Congress, we haven't been paid and we need to get paid. Peace is on the horizon. And it was effectively a threat of not laying down their arms unless they got paid because they hadn't been paid in years. This is the officer class. The men hadn't been paid either, but the officer class was especially concerned about itself getting paid. This creates an incredible opportunity for Robert Morris and Alexander Hamilton to yoke the interests of the bondholding class to the interests of a, a class of people who are armed and uh, very well organized, uh, the officer class of the, uh, of the revolution, who have men following them, who depend on them. So what Morris and Hamilton set out to do, really, was leverage this, this basically this threat of coup coming from the Continental Army officers 
and force the Continental Congress to pass force in that sense, under threat of coup, force the Continental Congress to pass this tax on imports, which would be a wedge for further taxes, all to fund the bondholding class. So Morris offers the Continental Army, uh, basically, become bondholders. We'll just, we'll just shuffle you into this thing. We'll grow the debt, which they were for, growing the debt, because the, the bigger the debt, the more concentrated the, the wealth and the, the greater the need to tax to support it. And he tries to make a deal with the officer class to basically threaten not to lay down their arms to the civil authority unless they get, uh, unless all the bondholders, not just them, all the bondholders get this tax passed earmarked for funding bonds, which is a quite an extreme and remarkable thing to, to do. The question around this has always been, did they expect to actually have a military coup? I mean, the rich, the financiers, the Morris people have a military coup and take over in that sense, forcing their opponents to do what they wanted, or were they just threatening it? This is something that, you know, people argue about. And I'm kind of like, well, that's an interesting question. But, you know, if you're threatening it, it's kind of like an effective coup anyway, then, because, you know, you're like, you're saying, well, we might not lay down our arms unless we get paid. And the we is no longer just the army. The we is the bondholding class. So it's quite it's quite a remarkable moment, and again, you know, not widely discussed because it's so unedifying and raises so many conflicts about the integrity of the army, the integrity of the officer class, the integrity of the superintendent Morris. Hamilton kind of comes into his own in this process, just basically telling the Continental Congress, you know, we have to do this, we have to fund it, and we can't just fund it for the officer class. We've got to fund it for everybody, and he was effectively threatening the uh, the Congress with a military takeover unless we get this tax passed. And he's, he's pretty involved, right? I mean, there's a letter to Washington that's a little sketchy. Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. I mean, he, he kind of takes it on himself or is deputized. I think he kind of offered. He's like, I'll write to Washington and try to put it to him, you know, that... Uh, he need he maybe he should like be be part of this you know it's a very tricky you read this letter it's kind of hilarious because he's trying to he's trying to get washington to basically endorse this thing but he can't say that i mean it's and and nobody was more concerned with his own integrity his own stature his own sort of position of seeming at least highly disinterested than washington so it could have been really like it could have really gone wrong for hamilton there his whole career the, the whole important career could have ended right there in the end you know washington managed his everyone's way out of this problem i think i, I think washington really found a brilliant way to manage manage to handle the crisis lower the temperature get the bondholding class and the officers what they wanted at least a promise in the end, you know, more things had to happen, but at least a promise uh, to um, fund the de- fund the debt for everybody, and at the same time, um, he kind of qu- uh, calmed the the waters of of coup and takeover, and he kind of masterfully did what Ma- what Morris and Hamilton were doing could have really badly backfired. I mean, it could have gotten really bad, even if they were just trying to make it a threat. Uh, the country could have devolved in civil war. Uh, we don't know what would have happened. What's fascinating to me is Washington got everything they wanted without that. And really, by the end of that episode, he had he had managed the whole thing into kind of getting Morris what Morris wanted. 
I mean, in that sense, Hamilton too, what Hamilton wanted. So you end up with the officer class of the country, the officer class of the revolution now kind of welded to the bondholding elite, which, you know, it's kind of a military industrial connection, basically. I mean, it's like you've now militarized the bondholding elite and enriched the military. And that's what came out of, of the Newburgh crisis, which it didn't all work out the way they wanted it to, but it set the table for some things that happened later. Right. And this is, I mean, so, so what, what is all together here is, is war, the military debt taxation in the formation of the United States as we know it. I mean, the other big crisis in this book that you wrote an entire book about that sort of follows on this is the Whiskey Rebellion, where once again, Washington and Hamilton play these, these key roles. How does that event lead into the Whiskey Rebellion? What is the Whiskey Rebellion? How is it misunderstood? Uh, you painted this image of yourself in the library, thinking you knew what it was and coming out and realizing that it was much more fraught <laughs> what was going on there. Yeah, I just thought it'd be like a cool story. It is a cool story. It's got a lot of drama and a lot of colorful character and stuff. Herman Husband comes back, you know, which is cool. Um, there's a lot of, There's a lot of great stuff in it, but I had no idea when I got into it. It was really the thing that cracked open all this other stuff we've been talking about for me. So it happened in 17, I mean, it was the 1790s now. So for me, it, I had to start looking back to how all this stuff got set up, stuff we've just been talking about, you know. Um, and that's how I first got into this. So yeah, now we got to jump ahead. I mean, the Constitution did happen. And for Hamilton, the Constitution was a mechanism for getting imperfectly, but getting a lot of what he'd wanted to bring about the Morris vision, which is now the more sophisticated Hamilton vision for really centralizing wealth in the country um, and consolidating wealth in the country and creating a financial elite totally connected to government and government that is totally connected to a financial elite, which in Hamilton's vision is going to like unlock, you know, incredible dynamic potential and turn the country into, very quickly in his, in his hopes, into a kind of another version of Britain. I mean, with central banking and an ability to make war and an ability to build infrastructure and an ability to just do huge new projects sort of equivalent to war at the high elite level. Yeah, let's, uh, but you, 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 let's pause there because you actually, you do mention in one book just some of the sort of, I think you use the phrase, unsexy things in the constitution that, that relate to this, right? And the direct tax power is an example you give. You talk about the prohibition on states. You know They can't print money. They can't use anything but gold and silver as legal tender for paying back public or private debts. So you know these are concentration. It's a concentration of power, but also a direct attack on the movement for, for popular finance. And what you put in, what you add that's really interesting, I think, is basically the the power of the federal government to call out and control mi militias, right? Which is, you say, is adding teeth to these, right? Like it, there's military force underneath these economic powers. Right. That's the thing. The Constitution, you know, gave Hamilton um, not everything he wanted by no means. I mean, he wanted to dissolve, uh, he, he wanted to dissolve the states really as, as independent governments. He wanted to go all that way. There was no way that was going to happen. But he got certain tools out of the Constitution, I mean, and they and they're very critical to his um, to bringing about his vision. And one of them is to not is to not let the states, um, you know, have have their own money. Um, that's one. And uh, there there's a number of provisions in there that are kind of the unsexy provisions of the Constitution that people don't like to talk about. They're because they're about money. Back to that that issue, they're about they're about money and they're about um, economics and stuff. But 
he created a lot of uh, a centralization of finance and, and that gave him that gave him a he really he the constitution did and while he's often seen as having sort of screwed up at the constitutional convention he made a long speech in which he admitted that he wanted to get rid of the states and he was kind of sidelined in that sense i think the constitution is the hamilton constitution really i mean i think he and morris and that crowd with James Madison working with them at the time, got these financial, along with everything else, they got these these finance provisions in, which makes the federal government very central in managing money throughout, through, money and wealth and taxation. It had the power to tax, and it had the power to tax in any way it really wanted to, something that you know the old Continental Congress never had and Hamilton and Morris always wanted. So those things get into the Constitution, and to me, in many ways, they're the key provisions of the Constitution. That seems kind of eccentric now, but I would think if you look at how Hamilton looked at the Constitution, that's how he looked at it. So, uh, and, and he, then he went about you know, trying to bring about uh, the kind of country he wanted based on those powers that he got. Uh, through the that he got as Treasury Secretary of Washington, through the through the Constitution that he had helped bring about all these things that he gets into the he and and Morris and others get and and that crowd get into the Constitution give give Hamilton the tools to um, to do a better version of the kind of taxing they called an impost that the kind of the taxing that Morris wanted to do I mean you get really a tax on on ordinary people. It's a regressive tax, the whiskey tax that that Hamilton gets passed, it, in the in the very way we've just been talking about. Of course, I mean the whole idea is to spread spread the 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 paying in around and then and then uh, earmark it for a small group of of rich bondholders uh, and yoke those bondholders' um, gain and interests to big public projects. I mean that was that was the plan, and the whiskey tax was was intended to do that. It was it was an extremely regressive tax by design, and, and no, few bones were made about it really. Um, but that whole democratic movement that we were talking about before, that whole movement did not disappear during this period. It went through changes. The the link really is Herman Husband. Um, because he shows up in the Whiskey Rebellion, which was just the the big sort of final drama of that big conflict we were talking about earlier, uh, from starting with the North Carolina Regulation all the way to the Whiskey Rebellion. There's a there's a through line there, and what happens in between is the country gets formed as a nation, and as a regressive, a financially re- fiscally regressive nation. So the whiskey tax is just blatantly regressive, and the people who it hits the hardest know it. They're back to that issue about like people understood finance, you know, they were, they, they might have different terminology for it than we have now, but ordinary people knew exactly how that tax was intended to work, to take money from ordinary people and, and put it in the pockets of a few rich bondholders. And, you know, the, the details of that are quite complicated and I do go through them in a couple of different books and it's, it's a long story, but they were, I, all I would say, I guess, is that the scholarship on this, uh, that I've read and I've tried to sort of frame up by writers like uh, Boughton, I mentioned before, and Dorothy Fennell and, some, uh, and Weithold and some others, it makes it very clear to me that, that the intention of the tax was to, was to sort of disable the popular movement, the populists, the people we've been talking about, the democracy, um, on a multitude of levels. And it really just sort of crushed the place where, the, where democratic action had really shifted to, the, the the West, as it was called then, which would be uh, at that time around the Ohio River in Western Pennsylvania, uh, where the you know the best whiskey was made there, 
It was very much in demand. And it's where democracy, the old uh, sort of surging democracy, the whole anti-elitist impulse that had sort of created Herman Husband originally, it had, it had kind of focused itself out there by this time. So the tax is recognized by its kind of victims as a tax to destroy them and, and, and put them back into foreclosure, into the foreclosure situations they'd been struggling against their whole lives for generations, really. So it, what, what it looks like, you know, it's again, I said before, it's kind of that, I was first telling somebody a long time ago about how uh, I was going to write this book about the Whiskey Rebellion and kind of was going through this complicated explanation. And he said, oh, so it's like meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And I was like, uh, yeah, it's not that complicated. That's exactly what it is. The people in Western Pennsylvania around Pittsburgh uh, and in the mountains there could see exactly what this tax was doing to them. And Hamilton presented the whiskey tax as a kind of innocuous luxury tax on an on a luxury item. You can take it or leave it if you don't want to, you know, you should don't want to, you know, pay the tax, don't drink so much whiskey because it gets passed on to the consumer in the form of a higher price and so forth. That was his rationale. And it sounds it's sort of convincing to people who didn't know in, in Congress, who didn't know economics that well. But the people on the ground where it was really going to hurt them knew economics really well. And they knew that there were all kinds of mechanisms built into that tax. They could see it right away where the whole thing was designed to put the small producer out of business and consolidate the industry around big producers, which is what Hamilton wanted to do the whole economy. This was like a pilot program, really, for like what I want to do to the whole economy. Take the, get all these people who think they want to have their own little farms and artisan shops and get them working, you know, lined up in a kind of, you know, nice industrialized fashion working for a few rich people. And that's, we're going to be productive this way. And they'll be happier that way in the end, too. Come on, like what? What, you really want your little farm, you know? It, it was an industrial vision of great scope. I mean, incredibly impressive, you know? He, saw, he was looking to a future of kind of industrialized factory work at a time when it hadn't really happened yet. So um, the whiskey tax is a wedge for all that. It really doesn't have that much to do with people liking to drink whiskey, which is the way it's often been presented and how Hamilton liked to present it to the public sometimes, that, that they were just rebelling because they were just like, wanted to drink a lot of whiskey. The people on the ground out West had the economic critique to see exactly what it was in a way that many of the elites, Hamilton's opponents and the elites in, in the East didn't, didn't see. And so they had that, that, that vision and they, they put it in petitions and they clarified it very well. And in that sense, the, what became called the Whiskey Rebellion was really, because it was suppressed militarily by the federal government with incredible, absurd overkill force. Um, it was kind of, at that period, the last gasp of the democracy, uh, as, as it was called, had had its impact over, over many years during the colonial period, tried to become part of the country, really, and, and get the country aligned around democratic, economic democratic ideas, and finally had this, it's not like, it was a pretty major uh, event. I mean, they were really talking about seceding, having the western part of the country, which is what, you know, western Pennsylvania was then, kind of seceding and cutting the, the eastern capitals off from the potential wealth of the west. I mean, it was pretty dramatic. But, yeah, it was really the climax in some ways of that kind of, you know, populism such a loaded word. But that kind of, you know, they called it democracy, actually, with a small d. So, you know. Uh, that kind of thing. It was really the climax in that period of that of that impulse that had last had, had begun well before the country was founded. And one thing, you know, you point out that whiskey, for some people, almost became a form of currency. It stores really well, right? It stores mm -hmm. better than grain. It's yeah, easily it transportable. 
So, hey, it only gets better. Yeah, exactly. um, and, you know, so it, it was a, a truly you know, ingenious targeted tax. And it was also hitting people who were rebellious, who were part of this, you know, program that was a thorn in the side of the, the elites. And then it was a sort of double boon to the big producers because they also were the tax collectors often, right? The big distilleries. Incredibly. I mean, yes. I mean, it's not incredible, of course. It's like, oh yeah, right. So in Western Pennsylvania, Hamilton made the local guy who was the biggest distiller and also just the biggest businessman of the area, made him the tax collector. So he got a cut of the taxes that he collected from his poorer neighbors. He got to inspect their operations and, you know, and write them, you know, fines and everything. I mean, if you were already, if you were Herman Husband and you were already deeply disappointed in what had happened with the revolution because you thought maybe your vision, I mean, he actually had the vision vision, your vision of what like the New Deal or the Great Society or something was going to come about because of the American Revolution. And you saw what happened in Western Pennsylvania, which is where he was living at the time. And now he's an old man. And you see this all of your hopes from when you were young in this almost parody of, of corruption, you know, uh, when, the, when the biggest whiskey distiller, John Neville, General Neville, uh, is the tax collector collecting from his poorer neighbors because he's, a, you know, a crony of Washington and Hamilton. Well, husband kind of freaked out, you know, like there was, a, there was an idea there was going to be something much, much better, much different, opposite, really, of that kind of corruption, fundamental corruption built into the system. And I mean, it was just a huge, you know, th for him, this was a the Whiskey Rebellion. For husband, I mean, the Whiskey Rebellion was like the last battle. It was like going to be, you know, Armageddon, basically. It, for him, this was, it, he thought it was the revolution. Turned out the revolution in his eyes was corrupted in these ways that we're talking about, which are manifestly corrupt. He thought that the Whiskey Rebellion wasn't like just some little rebellion. This was, this for husband and husband's vision, which was literally a vision, was the final battle between, in America, between forces for potential good, which to him meant, you know, fairness, economic fairness, and forces for evil, satanic evil, which he associated with that tiny elite that was benefiting from the whiskey tax by getting their, you know, payments so that their descendants could live in, you know, idleness for generations. That's how husbands saw it. Well, and it was, and, and you mentioned this, but it was, it was squashed very violently by Washington and, or at least, you know, with him playing a, a key role. And you mentioned in the book that none other than John Yu actually referenced it during the war on terror, if I'm not misremembering. Um, yes, That's right. you know, <laughs> as a, right. a precedent for, uh, executive power and actually, uh, you know, vacating <laughs> people's basic democratic rights. Yeah, that's true. And people don't like to talk about the, the, the ramifications of the people sort of on the liberal side of things, let's say, don't like always to talk about the ramifications of the whiskey rebellion. They like to sideline it because it was an, an incredible a uh, show of like strong arm power by government against the people with, as you just said, you know, Washington leading it. Um, and so there's a president serving as commander in chief for, if it's not the only time, the only other time might've been Madison trying to come outside Washington during the war of 1812 and show some kind of, it, it, it was the only real time. 
the president really served as commander-in-chief of forces in the field, and those forces were being brought against the American people. Uh, uh, who were indeed rebelling, by the way. I mean, it was super violent on, on, on that side as well. I mean, it was kind of like, what, what did they think they were going to do? Sooner or later, Washington and Hamilton are going to come out with force and crush this. But um, you get that moment, which for Herman Husband is like, you know, Armageddon or whatever. Um, yeah, and then you get uh, John Yoo saying, well, this is precedent for the kinds of things we need to be doing, you know. And so, yeah. When I first got into the Whiskey Rebellion, I couldn't even see what was coming, you know. But like War on Terror was 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 happening right when I was doing the research, and I just kind of couldn't believe. I almost felt like I felt like Herman Husband. I felt like, whoa, there's these incredible tides going on here, and only I can see it, you know. It was it was a bizarre feeling because I got into the Whiskey Rebellion right when the War on Terror started. Yeah, I mean, and this is you know, it, it, it's bittersweet, right? The image that you say of people, you know joining this revolution and then ultimately, you know, still ending up oppressed uh, and just with with the new boss who's, you know, in many ways, the same as the old boss. Um, and that that is one of the risks always of <laughs> uh, rebellious movements. Um, it's happened. It's happened many times. But, you know, looking back at Herman Husband, a lot of his ideas are they're more real than they were at the time, for sure, right? I mean, that's why we can say this guy was ahead of his time. Um, and so towards, you know, as, as one of your closing sort of takeaways, you know, you say, you know, when we think about social pro- progressivism successes in the 19th and 20th centuries, and I'm hoping the 21st century, you know, they're actually, you know, this is, you're, you're making the case, like, stop trying to to shoehorn these ideas into the most famous founding fathers. Like we need to look at these founding figures instead, right? Figures like husband and young and others who represented this alternative tradition uh, that has never been totally squashed, but also has really, you know, always been the underdog. Is that still, is that still where you're at 10 years later? You know, you're still, still thinking about these issues, obviously. Um, but yeah, should we abandon the cult of Hamilton? Stop trying to, to salvage those guys and just find other other lineages. Um, you know, are there lessons to be learned from this? You know, as I said at the beginning, it's interesting for me as someone who, you know, I can't deny that there's definite resonances as, as, as debtors continue to revolt hundreds of years later. Yeah, there are huge resonances, I think. And I think there, I, I, I don't know, maybe this is crazy. You would know better, really. I, I, I have a f- weird feeling that, you know, did I publish that book 10 years ago? Yeah. I mean, and now I'm publishing again on, on, on some of the same issues in a different way. Um, but I feel like there's more going on now than there was. Occupy was happening then, so I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I just feel like the specifics of, of, these, of these issues, the economic specifics are more in the air now, a little bit more mainstream, along with everything else getting sort of worse. You know, we could look at some some progress. I mean, I think you must be looking at some progress, right? I mean, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I guess. I, I mean, this is what I think. This is the quandary, right? I mean, are, is there progress? I think. I mean, you know, for me, I think Occupy was. You know, we used to tell ourselves this at Occupy, and, and in fact, you know, we there's a long episode where I'm actually the interviewee about the legacy of Occupy. But at the time, we we're like, we're changing the conversation. We're putting these issues back in the discourse. And I and now I think. 10 years later, I'm like, actually, that's true. You know, the the conversation has really shifted. And, you know, the debt collective did just win significant debt relief for student debtors, which, you know, 
by some estimates could be $500 billion. That's not insignificant. We worked really hard for it. There weren't that many of us there's, you know, doing it, which makes me think about the possibilities of more people joining, joining these movements and building more power. And I guess, you know, I think we are also, this is another thing to tie to your book. I, I think we're talking about debt, both personal debt and public debt in smarter ways. So one, the debt collective, I will proudly say that we've helped lead this charge thing. You know, your personal debt, and and I think Herman Husband probably would have agreed, is not your fault. It's structural conditions. These are structural economic conditions that drive you into debt, that force you to live at the mercy of lenders and landlords. On the other hand, the question of public debt, you know, and deficits is always about, well, who are we, who are these debts for? Do they just exist to enrich the wealthy bondholders? Or are we taking on, you know, into fund war? Are we funding things that ultimately enrich the public and have public benefit? And are we funding them in ways that aren't regressive, but are progressive? You know, and that's a really important lesson, especially as, you know, we, you can already see the right wing getting ready to, to have another debt ceiling fight and all of that. So one thing you say, another thing you say in the book, you know, is that, you know, folks like Grover Norquist, you know, maybe we don't agree with Hamilton, want to totally embrace his politics, <laughs> Robert Morris's vision of, of how the national debt should be structured. But they're also proof that the Grover Norquist and the right wingers of the world are wrong when they say, you know, hey, the United States is like anti-deficit and anti-tax. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> You know, it is. And we but we still need to talk. We still need to fight over what that national debt, what those taxes are for and who benefits. Right. They're for. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where, you know, FDR, you know, did never heard of Herman Husband. Right. I mean, I I I almost guarantee that. And, you know, other other a a lot of 20th century. I mean, this is the problem, you know, we started with, which is like, well, who are we looking to in the founding period? If we have to look to the founding period, there's all this like, oh, let's shoehorn, you know, Jefferson into being a progressive or Hamilton into being a progressive. And it's just gone around and around, like every flavor of the flavor of the year, like who's who's the good guy? Because we're not looking at the right people for, for these issues. I mean, you can look at those people. It's important to look at them. It's important to know what Hamilton was really up to and Morris and those people. And we haven't even gotten into how, like, like, and we, there's no time now, and it's very complicated to get into how the Jefferson-Madison world kind of functions in relation to this, too. But, but you know, we're always looking at those two sets of pe- that two, those two groups, and we're not looking at husband. We're not looking at Young and Cannon and what they did as kind of ancestors. Really, you keep getting, I keep, one keeps getting told that one is being anachronistic if one brings up some of these really progressive ideas and, and locates them in the 18th century. But I mean, they're precisely non-anachronistic. They're they're precisely the kinds of so. If we need models from the past, which I'm not totally sold on the idea that we do, but if we do, you know, some of them are there. They're just the fight over whether it's Jefferson or Hamilton is just really played to me. I mean, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now, and I, I am still very interested in all this stuff. I have a book coming out about it, and um, it'll it'll take a different tack. But the Whiskey Rebellion will be in it again in a different way. And I'm going to go past that into the Jefferson era and look at how some of those, how things went once that movement was sort of crushed. But yeah, I, the, the past is, it, it's, it's not that long ago in certain ways. And all these issues that you're dealing with are, are still here. No, and I think, you know, for me, it's, it's interesting to think of, yeah, what, how would our politics be different if we put these, these battles, this, these, you know, the, the emphasis that the founders placed on, you know, creditors versus debtors front and center, instead of us always having to, you know, and when I say us, I literally mean you know, debtors who are mobilizing to 
you know, assert, hey, this is actually a legitimate issue we should pay attention to. I mean, if you look at the historical record, it's like, well, duh, yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's right there in those debates. And yet it, it is constantly being erased. Um, tell me the name of your forthcoming book, if you have one already. Oh, well, I have a working title. It's called, and I don't know if it's really going to be the title. It's going to, right now I'm calling it the Hamilton Scheme, um, even though it goes into stuff after Hamilton, because Hamilton is so well known right now. I'm not going to leave him off the title, but I, I don't yet know exactly what, but it's going to be, I mean, the subtitles, you know, whatever, like the friends and enemies of, and Hamilton and the friends and enemies who had these, the idea is to had these battles. And I'd like to sort of frame it somehow to make kind of clear that it's the same battles we're having now. Um, but I haven't yet figured out how to exactly to frame all that up for, I want, I really want this to be a book for, you know, ordinary readers who are not erudite in this, these matters. So how to frame that up for people who might want to just read a kind of cool story that has modern, very important modern resonances. I haven't nailed the title yet necessarily. Well, whatever the title is, we'll have you back on the dig. And I'm still holding out hope that one day there will be a, a Herman Husband musical for us to go uh, watch and enjoy. <laughs> yes, that would be awesome. Thank you, Bill, for joining us on The Dig. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great conversation. William Hoagland is the author of five books on the American founding period, including Founding Finance, The Whiskey Rebellion, and Autumn of the Black Snake. His new book, The Hamilton Scheme, Alexander Hamilton and His Enemies and Allies in the Fight to Found an American Economy, is forthcoming from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, public credit becomes the credo of capital. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Riofrancos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and all of our newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those ratings and reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really helps is you telling people you know, either in real life or on social media, to check out the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.